0: Welcome to the Voice Equals Power podcast, where we explore the big question, how does an artist find their voice? I'm your host, Nicholas Krolak. Today's episode is brought to you by me. I've put in a lot of hours over the past couple of months in order to get this podcast up and running on less than a shoestring budget. With that in mind, I offer this disclaimer, the audio quality of the show is less than ideal. However... Despite the low fidelity sound, high fidelity conversation with innovators of the current jazz scene can be found here. So as my teacher once told me after I complained about a certain jazz legend's sound, you gotta listen past the tone, then you'll get to the ideas. So please bear with me on the sonic front, I'm working on it. In the meantime, if you or your organization would like to underwrite an episode, hit me up through my website, nicholaskrolak.com, or on Instagram at nicholas underscore krolak. I promise you the first investment I make will be in some proper recording equipment. Today I sat down in the ever lively Clark Park, home of the annual Community Unity Festival with Philadelphia jazz icon Justin Faulkner. Brought up in a musical household, extremely gifted, and infinitely motivated, he began his professional career at 13. Since then, he has played with jazz royalty such as Jimmy Heath, Orrin Evans, Sean Jones, Tim Warfield, Pharaoh Sanders, Terence Blanchard, Jackie Terrasson, Christian McBride, and perhaps best known as drummer for the Brantford Marcellus Quartet. We had a great conversation about a variety of topics including the origins of the Community Unity Festival, fashion, his acting debut in the film Bolden, the joy of listening, coming up in Brantford's band, advice for students, and much more. I hope to see you all at this year's Community Unity Festival on August 3rd at Clark Park in West Philadelphia. It's always a blast, it supports a great cause, and it's free. Justin Faulkner, thanks for hanging out with me today on this
1: warm summer day. Yeah, but it feels good out here and thanks for having me. Man. Yeah. This is, uh, this is really cool and it's also great to be in the, darn near the backyard of my own home. You know, yeah. being in the neighborhood that I grew up in. Absolutely. Hearing the trolley pass and seeing all of the people flow, chess matches are about to start, you know. It's Absolutely. cool. Absolutely. We're here in
0: Clark Park, which is the site of the Community Unity Festival, mm-hmm. which we will get to in a little bit. I'm really excited about this year. Really cool lineup. Oh, yes, really good. great headliners. But I first wanted to start talking, get into this a little bit. I want to talk about fashion. Okay, cool. Because you're a styling man. Uh, you're very and, kind. You're very kind. And um, I, I noticed Things like that, because I'm also into fashion myself. Uh, My wife is a fashion designer. Oh, I never knew that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She she does a lot of um, women's fashion gowns and very, uh, very interesting things. But I always look at at fashion, and I always see the connection to it with music. And I just wanted to ask you, uh, when did you get into fashion? And well, first, could you just kind of describe? listeners like what what your kind of passion vibe is okay uh
1: i think that like i've always desired to look older mm-hmm. you know to kind of have an older aesthetic from an, uh from an optics perspective and uh 90 of that is normally based in classic style things that have stood the test of time in terms of garments that you know have proceeded to Predated all of us, you know, like like the the blue blazer or, you know, a loafer, a brogue, a uh, you know a, a navy coat or you know just all of these things that are um, functional. You know, I think that most of my style that I've tried to develop over the years, some consciously, some subconsciously, is really just based in functionality you know it's like when I'm traveling I wear a blazer because I need to put stuff in my pockets like you know I wear like a safari jacket because it has like a billion pockets on it you know I wear uh, trousers because there's normally more room in them if I'm on a long-haul flight you know going 13 hours or, or whatever so yeah I've always just been an impotence of functionality and most of it has been, been based in classic menswear tailoring mm-hmm. Uh, you know i've always wanted to look like sydney portier or nat king cole and, mm-hmm. you know i went through the skinny tie phase i went through the super skinny like almost painted on suits mm-hmm. from h&m and then you know now i'm graduating into more of a somewhat of a relaxed fit mm-hmm. i mean you know that's relative and everybody's relaxed fit is kind of relative to your body type and mm-hmm. i think um as i'm getting older i'm just learning about what really looks good on me Rather than what's trendy now, because I've spent way too much money on trendy things that I probably wore twice. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, I, I consider my wardrobe an investment because it's a part of my business. It's a part of my um, my overall aesthetic that I'm presenting to people when I'm approaching them to just even say hello. You know, like that's the first thing they see. They don't see your personality, mm-hmm. but they can depending on the way that you dress. So I find, yeah, I just find it necessary to be as out of the way as possible, you know? Like, I want my, my, my wardrobe now is very muted and subdued. Like, I don't wear loud colors. If I do, it's probably like a sock or something like that. So essentially, yeah, functionality and staying out of the way and just letting letting whatever's around me be the focal point and have me just being a pedestrian flowing through, you know? Yeah, yeah I hear that
0: a lot in when I talk to listeners of jazz, mm. uh, they will often comment to me about how the band looks. do yeah. they look like a band yeah. or do they just look like a random assortment of people mm-hmm. and uh, I think that's very important for for listeners of jazz who may not be musicians who may need another avenue of, of connection yeah. and uh, I always try to impress that upon upon. Uh, Younger students of jazz Absolutely I, I remember Quick aside I remember I had a, 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 One of my first bass teachers okay. uh, Made me get a tuxedo Oh yeah And wear it, wear it to A lesson oh, that's that, that I could <laughs> prove That I knew All the parts of the tuxedo Wow And uh, You know I got like A second hand Tuxedo yeah, yeah, yeah. Tuxedo vibe And uh, It was a good lesson Yeah uh, And I, I think that as you know, we're in the 21st century, as things are more digital, more YouTube, yeah. people s- see us more. Yeah, it's a very
1: visual medium now, yeah.
0: And um, you have recently gone into acting. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, can we a, talk very, about a very uh, poor job <laughs> at it.
1: Um, so I got, okay. First, quick disclaimer: I'm not an actor by any means. Like, I guess because I have been in a film, I can be considered one. But my skill level, of solo, is not even funny. But um, you know what? What happened was uh, Branford and his brother Delphio, Branford Marcellus and Delphio Marcellus, were having a conversation. Uh, Delphio was uh, brought on by a really great. Human being named Dan Pritzker, who was the director and screenwriter of the film. Uh, If I'm not mistaken, screenwriter, I believe. Uh, But director and one of the executive producers as well. uh, Yeah, he was brought on by Dan to be a producer uh, in terms of the music and also in terms of the. uh, How appropriate? That's actually going to be Uh, So, yeah, and and also to just be a part of the whole process of getting the band together. So, the film is about Buddy Bolden, who they consider the uh, origin of, or the creator of jazz. And, you know, there's no information about his life for the most part that's available to the general public. You have to be really interested in this because you have to go down a deep rabbit hole in order to find a lot of information. And so, uh, yeah... Delphio and Bradford were having this conversation, Delphio asked Bradford if he knew of a drummer, and Bradford said, yeah, call Justin. And he's like, well, you know, he has to he has to audition and do a screen test, and he's like, yeah, sure, well, call him, here's his info. Mm-hmm. Delphio contacted me, and uh, I did a screen test at the uh, Clef Club with, uh, I don't know if you remember Scotty, that works down at the Clef mm-hmm. Club, but Scotty was my reading partner in the, in the <laughs> screen test, and Yeah, I guess they liked what they saw. And um, it was probably one of the greatest experiences of my life, just because I was forced to learn trad music, because I had kind of been shuffling my feet for a long time with learning, because, you know, some of the recordings are sort of hard to decipher. And um, also, you know, when you're listening to early music, unless you've been an advocate for that music or your parents were an advocate for, for that music, it's, a, it's hard to get into sometimes, you know, for the average person or even for the jazz musicians, which is, you know, probably why a lot of people don't necessarily listen to it when, even though it's mandatory for all of us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think, um, I think just being, like, having to be in New Orleans for roughly six months to a year, um, and being able to go to Preservation Hall to hear Gerald French play, play the drums, who is, I mean, one of the masters of tribe music, same thing with um, Herlin Riley, I mean, one of the greatest drummers to ever live. Same thing with Shannon Powell, the same thing. You know, it's like to have those three pillars like readily accessible to you as a musician, period. Like, it doesn't matter who you are. Like, they're just open, humble human beings, you know? And uh, they were all very cool and very generous to me. You know, I would go here, Shannon at the prime example, uh, I think it was on Thursdays and he we would just hang I'd go I'd see Herlin like walking down the street and I'd pull him to the side and I'd ask him some questions and he had known me since I was a young kid Um, and so yeah just having those connections in New Orleans and then being paid to be in a film in the same regard like I would play gigs at night after we got finished shooting or like after we finished rehearsals Mm -hmm. and then I would hang out on Frenchman Street and you know I learned some of the basics of playing in a brass band like I mean my life was changed and also I realized that New Orleans being an extension of where my family's actually from mm-hmm. was a place that I should have been in the first place mm-hmm. or, or a place that I should have visited a long time ago and, but um, you know even now I go back to New Orleans and I go hang out at Snug Harbor that I used to play at every Wednesday um, and people are like hey Justin mate, so you're back in town I mean it's <laughs> almost as if I didn't leave and, yeah so yeah, being in that film, you know, I learned, I, I was with a great group of gents and, and women that, that were um, really influential, you know, just life-giving in in individuals, you know, I mean, there was, there was meditation, there were meditation practices, there were, you know, parties that we gave and ended up being like these round table discussions of current events and the world at large. I mean, it was just, it was an incredible time. We did, I think we were there, in atlanta wilmington north carolina and new orleans for a total of almost a year and a half almost mm. so um yeah it was incredible and dan prisker he's he's a great individual and you know the fact that he took the artistic license to do something like this yeah it means a lot to the history of what we are as jazz, yeah you know whether stuff is factual or whatever like somebody did it yeah you know they did a miles davis movie and a lot of people had problems with it someone did it. Thank yeah. you. There's a documentation of something. You know? And if we, I think this is somewhat of a sidebar, but if we continue to look at all the negative things in people's endeavors to preserve certain aspects of history, I mean, okay, not everyone's perspective is the same, nor is it all based in like validity of whatever the history is saying. I mean, this is not making any sense, but it's like, you know, it's not always important To have the like, it's not always important for you to be right. Mm -hmm. To try means a great deal, and a lot of people are missing that point. It's like, why not just throw the rock out there and see if it'll work? Mm -hmm. You know, like, see if it hits somebody. Oh, cool, great. I didn't mean to hit you. Sorry, (laughs) I was trying to throw it (laughs) over your head. But you know, it's like just just attempt to do something. And that that project, I mean, it was self-funded. Dan mm-hmm. Dan funded mm-hmm. the whole thing himself Wow! and released it in theaters and did screenings for everyone. I mean, they did a private screening for me here in Philadelphia. And, you know, he paid for all of this stuff out of pocket. And so that also meant a great deal as well. So, yeah. and everybody that worked on it, I mean, just incredible team. Mm-hmm. You know, our costume designer was a bespoke tailor from London, which was great for me. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's like, I mean, I just, I mean, I made, I, I created friendships. We created friendships that... definitely stand the test of time yeah one of the people's from here in philadelphia actually like the she was in the wardrobe department uh, angeline ziegler Mm -hmm. whose brother apparently is like a jazz drummer in philadelphia Mm -hmm. island of scott ziegler i I believe his name is Mm -hmm. so uh yeah it was an incredible experience that's great yeah you said that um
0: it's it's important to the to the history it's i think it's also important to the future absolutely um i i think that i'm thinking i can't stop thinking about uh Around Midnight in the movie uh, with yeah, uh, yeah. Dexter Gordon and and um, full band yeah. and uh, it's just making me think that I would love to see more jazz musicians <laughs> acting I feel like other musicians right. of other genres make that transition yeah. or utilize that I feel like that would be a great thing to see and uh, see more of mm-hmm. and uh, a great way to expand uh, the fan base and Huh? grow jazz I, w- yeah. I would love to see more of that so thank you for taking that step and Man, you know I'm, adding I'm, to that I'm just position. happy they just called me yeah you know?
1: it's like, and then too you know another thing that's interesting is that uh, not only does it grow the fan base I mean what people feel to realize is that what we do is entertainment you Absolutely. know like yes the art aspect of it is extremely important and valid
2: mm-hmm.
1: but people are paying money to come and see us so yeah charisma might be necessary in order to kind of convey our message you Mm -hmm. know and so I think being on camera and seeing yourself on camera yeah, and realizing that you know you have this this tendency to you know not enunciate or you have this tendency to you know say like or you know or whatever all the time
2: Mm
1: -hmm. it it obstructs the clarity of your message at times and so yeah like you learn a lot about yourself when you see it when you're seeing your face on a screen or even just on your phone you know I look crazy when I play you know I look I like I mean it looks like I'm I'm whatever like I'm possessed or whatever the case may be but uh you know just like it's it's good to be self-aware that's a well, that's a whole nother yeah <laughs> whole nother <laughs> yeah topic, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah
0: Um, I want to Rewind a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to. I don't know if you remember this. I don't know if we met this night. Okay. But this this is. I want to recall um, my first experience hearing you play. Uh oh. Okay. And um, I'll tie it in with some other stuff. But I moved to Philadelphia. Must been like two thousand nine ish. Okay. And. I went to Chris's one night to go to a jam session, and you were playing there, I want to say with Tony Maselli.
1: I'm oh, not, I'm yeah, not 100%
0: yeah. sure about that, but I'm pretty sure. And uh, I had no idea who either of you were. Yeah. And it's totally new in town. And this was probably around, you'd probably be, uh, joined Branford's band. I had just joined Just band. band. Yeah. yeah. And I remember I was sitting outside and I was kind of always like nervous to go even go in uh-huh. and there's someone outside saying oh you know this drummer oh he's playing with Branford." and I was like oh cool and, you know I was really pumped up and I heard you guys play it and I was just like whoa <laughs> this Philly thing is a different ball game you know I've come from a small town you know never really experienced that okay. and um That it was just so motivating to me to hear that. I don't think I sat in that night. I think I was too scared to sit in. But um, it was a good experience to hear that. And I tell a lot of people coming myself coming from a smaller town um, with a much smaller scene. Where are you from originally? I'm originally from Woodbridge, New Jersey, close to New York. But I uh, went to college at uh, Moravian College in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I was in the Lehigh Valley for um, a while. And I didn't play jazz before college. Coming from a small scene, coming here, and hearing you guys was, it's like, whoa, this is some real stuff. <laughs> That's um, wild. So that was about two, uh, around 2009. Yeah. So you've been with Brantford for about 10, ten years, years um, now. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you, man. Um, glad you, I, I'm glad I haven't been fired. <laughs> yeah, <football. laughs> uh, I w- just kind of want to quickly mention two of my favorite albums of mm. uh, of that group is Four MFs playing tunes, oh, and and the new one, The Secret Between oh, the shadow, shadow and the smi- Soul. And the, yeah, the Shadow and the Soul. I was thinking the Shadow of Your Smile, but yeah, Shadow and the Soul. It sounds better it's fine <laughs> um But how how did you uh, start with Brantford, and what has the experience been like?
1: Mm. Um, Well, firstly, thank you for even listening to the records. That means a lot. Um, You know, it's... A lot of of what I've learned, musically speaking, has been based in the efforts of trying to be a great all-around musician and never being, you know, a great technician, like only care about music and then ignore the technique or be like super technical. Like none of it has been based in one perspective. And I think being in Branford's band has created that perspective for me. You know, I mean, my parents, lit, my parents made me listen to everything prior to playing with Branford, and so the cool part about just like my overall experience like the 18 years prior to me meeting Branford, or actually 16 because I met him when I was 16 um, my parents laid a foundation that Branford expounded upon and his goal wasn't for me to sound great in his band only mm. which was one of the most selfless things that I've experienced um, you know a lot of people train you or you know give you records that are indicative of the way that they hear music instead of basing the inventory that they're giving to you on the foundational principles of Western music period you know and I think that all of the guys in Brantford's band even over to our sound engineer and road manager who are integral aspects of who we are as the quartet I mean really what would that be a sextet? step? Six, yeah. Like, you know, like they're they're as important as us on stage, you know, and they've given me a ton of music to check out. You know, that was the first thing when I joined Branford's band. I just got tons of gigabytes of music from each person saying, Okay, mm. no, this is what I like. Oh no, this is what I like. And it was basically a lot of the same stuff. Yeah. But, you know, Branford had you know, hit me the tread and they all collectively had spoken very highly of Ahmad Jamal's band with Israel Crosby and Vernell oh, yeah. Uh the Philly Joe—I'm sorry—the Papa Joe Jones record, uh, this trio record where the drums are mixed higher than everything else, uh, so you can hear the intricacies of his brushwork and you can hear, you know, like the grunting and like just the whole nine. Like I mean, these these are records that they gave to me because they told me that these are like foundational aspects of just jazz vocabulary 101, and. You know, a lot of people aren't willing to sit through the process of you being broken down and rebuilt, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: you know, and I think that the guys, they gave me the greatest foundation on top of the life foundation that I'd already established at that point, you know, they were willing to say, okay, yeah, this is good, but you've built this foundation with sand. It's not going to work. We need to figure out another material. And they're all like, well, stone works, concrete works, like, it's up to you now. This is your choice. But here's your options. You figure it out. And, you know, the band taught me to critically think, you know, because, I mean, I joined the band when I was 17. Like, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know anything. You know, I knew, I knew enough to, to, for them to hear that I had something, I guess. But, um... It was just important that it was important for them to rebuild the foundation. That's really the mm-hmm. only way to put it. And I mean, it's been 10 years of us, you know, agreeing, disagreeing, having healthy discourse on a lot of aspects of life, not just music. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that I became an adult in the band. Which mm in all actuality I did and then also just you know my life experiences that I went through being with these guys I mean this is my family you know it's like I mean I lost my dad uh, like maybe a couple of weeks before we went back on the road and you know the first people I called was some of the guy well no we're all of the guys you know they had all dealt with something similar to that and if they hadn't they still had my back you know and um, I mean, you know, Branford Marcellus, Joey Calderazzo, Robert Hunter, Eric Rivas, and Roderick Ward are my brothers, mm. you know, and musically that comes out, socially that comes out, and I just believe that, you know, being in this band has uh, prepared me for a life of being a musician, you know, and that's more so speaking to the music than it is the other aspects because i mean you know i'm gonna do what i want essentially you know it's like as we as we as we roam through life we make these decisions based on our experiences and our uh value systems that we've developed and you know i think that instead of the guys dictating what i should do musically and socially and emotionally and spiritually they've always questioned my choices to make me critically think mm-hmm and yeah. a lot of people are afraid to have conversations like that Absolutely. because unpacking that kind of information can can be somewhat of a devastating thing because now you have to reboot everything mm-hmm. and figure out the source of where a lot of these things are coming from and I mean it's almost like it's almost like therapy in a way mm-hmm. you know and I mean playing in the band has been a very spiritual and therapeutic uh, thing and you know we all subscribe to different perspectives but you know, in the end there is, there's a spiritual thing that's happening on stage every night, mm-hmm. whether, you know, we've been playing together consistently, you know, like you know, four or five days of gigs, or whether we have, or, or, or if we've played like, you know, a gig a month, mm-hmm. which recently happened, like we played the Clifford Brown Jazz Fest, and I think we hadn't played for like maybe three or four weeks together. Mm-hmm. And you know, being honest, the music is hard. Like like, especially after this new record, it's just like, oh goodness. I mean, it's it's mentally exhausting every show. Mm -hmm. But um, there's always something special that happens because, in spite of what we desire, there's a level of transparency and honesty that comes out on stage that we can't control. So we just let it be, you know, and we play what the music dictates, and that's. Probably the greatest lesson I've learned from them It's like let the song tell you what it needs. Mm. don't try to Im- impose your will on something that's already a living thing mm. so yeah yeah <laughs> I, I
2: I
0: really believe that's one of the premier bands in jazz oh, man. and You're kind Thank and um, jazz jazz is very interesting in that a lot there's like a lot of fluidity with bands mm. and or there just isn't a, a band mm. in a lot of cases um, due to economic reasons or mm-hmm. uh, whatever reasons and that that can bring very interesting results when you have your band in flux all the time right. but also some real magical things can happen you know you think about like the classic bands yeah. you know throughout jazz history it's it's really great to see bands. Yeah, I, I'm yeah. personally into band I come I come from listening to Like a lot of rock and roll mm-hmm. Stuff uh, When I was a kid So like the band thing Is always Always yeah. gets me
1: good I mean that's how you establish A language mm-hmm. You know It's like It's funny I, I think about um, Let me see So yeah I was listening to a Love Supreme Right mm-hmm. And so The reality is that You can't play like that With Like with, with with rotating sidemen. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. Because there's a level of intensity that Elvin Jones plays with. I mean, I'm sure a pianist maybe could have come in and figured out a way to play with that, but him and McCoy had this forward motion thing that was happening. You can't do that if you don't know the person. Like, yeah. you've had to sit down, break bread, maybe get drunk together if that's a thing. Like, you know, whatever the the... the, the the medium of fellowship is going to be, that has to be in existence. Yeah. It's impossible. Like, I mean, Eric Reeves is literally like my brother. No. You know, Eric is 30 years older than I am, but the cool part about it is that, uh, <laughs> I remember he said this, these words to me, he said, man, you know, I treat you as an equal because I choose to. We were angry at each other about something. <laughs> the fact that he said that to me, yeah. spoke something that was really deep, because, okay, so within the band dynamic, we also have to realize who these people are individually.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and I think that, this is somewhat of a sidebar, but I think it's like, as a younger musician, it's important that we realize that our elders are our elders, even though they may be our boys. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. you know, And that like, sometimes just because someone is a friend of a friend, doesn't mean that y'all are cool. You know, mm-hmm. and so like, I think understanding those social dynamics has also made playing with other people easier. You know, because it's like whoever I play with, we're at least gonna have a conversation before we play. And if we don't, I'm probably gonna talk to you on stage. I just am because like there has to be like like there's a there's a biblical word, I think it's Greek perhaps or or Aramaic, I don't remember. But it's uh the word is Konanea, which is a deep form of fellowship where you are Gathering together for the same reason, you know, I mean in today's world we would consider it, you know Gathering for the sake of consciousness, but Mm. you know, I think that that is an An important aspect of you having a band. It's like we all have the same trajectory How do we get there? Oh, well, okay, you know some people Play shorter some people play longer some people play louder My hand being raised, you know, it's like we we figure out a way to support each other but also understand each other's vocabulary Mm -hmm. and that's yeah I mean it allows you to create that band dynamic wherever you go as organically as possible because you know what it's like to build a 10-year relationship with people you know Mm -hmm. so okay I'm done now (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
0: can you talk a little bit about your your first foundation uh, coming up in Philly and Some of your experience, experiences there. I'm very interested in um, people like yourself who learned music very early, mm. whereas I did not. I did not have that experience. Uh. And I'm, a kind of master plan of mine, long-term goal is is kind of figure out some way for older students to kind of bridge that gap and kind of like make up for lost time Mm. maybe not lost time isn't really the right word but um, accelerate learning Mm. in some way so I'm I'm always very curious like what experiences were like for musicians that learned really young
1: yeah Um, I mean you know the interesting thing for me is that music has just been a part of my life Mm -hmm. So, I mean, music is like breathing to me, you know. It's like, I mean, from from childhood, my parents played music in the house. I mean, tons of records. My father's vinyl collection was insane. My mother's record collection is also insane. And my mother's a classical pianist, so she would play in the house. And I would hear, you know, Bach and... And, uh... Rachmaninoff and all of these pieces and I'm like okay this is a drag to listen to I mean I was not into it at all but I've always been drawn to harmony even though I like to think that most of my perspective is based in melodic content not necessarily harmonic content being as I play the drums I don't see myself playing a major seventh chord on the drums but I do have to understand it, and you know, also growing up in church, a lot of the harmony is stressed over the melodic content. To for the musicians, the congregation does not know that you're playing C minor. They could care less what key the song is in. Most songs are in A flat. I mean, well, in like a lot of people sing in A flat just because. Yeah, I don't really know. I guess it's an easy key to sing in. I'm not too sure, but. You know I was just always drawn to certain harmonic uh, I guess certain harmonic progressions and you know there's a song that was very interesting to me when I was a kid I think I forget it's a Ralph McDonald tune it was on one of my dad's like mixed tapes literally yeah and uh, you know I would listen to it daily because there was just something beautiful about the progression mm-hmm. then uh, you know Pat Metheny was a huge inspiration for me first um, my father had the Still Life Talking record mm-hmm. and I listened to The Last Train Home every day for almost 6 months it was my, I went to sleep to it every night it was my favorite song in the world and um, you know the same thing happened when I heard Kind of Blue for the first time and so I think early on it was just that I was drawn to what I liked And, you know, like if you've never had sausage before, you may not be into it unless you're exposed to it, you know? And fortunately for me, you know, my parents had great taste in music. Um, So yeah, early on, I was definitely playing mostly by ear. I hated learning how to read music. It was a complete and utter disgrace. Like, I mean, it was so frustrating because by the time I started studying at about age seven, I had already kind of figured out how to play basic grooves on the drums, and I was playing in school. And I had no desire to learn how to read a quarter note. But then, you know, my mother continued to uh, encourage the fact that you know, in order for you to actually play gigs, you're gonna have to learn how to read music. So, I started playing classical music, and. Um, my teacher was really adamant about me learning the entire spectrum of classical percussion. So I played marimba and timpani. I really wanted to be an expert triangle player, actually. <laughs> yeah. um, there's a great percussionist named Tony Orlando that I met years down the line. He's the uh, associate principal percussionist of the Philly Orchestra, I believe. And um, you know, he would come and do masterclasses on triangle and tambourine playing. And he's a master, like it's it is absolutely incredible to hear the tones the tone that he's able to get out of the triangle. and he uses an Allen Abel triangle, and I mean, there's a whole methodology that goes into that that I still don't know at the moment. but um yeah, it's like, I mean, from age seven, even until now. My love for music is is the same. It's like it's it's grown for sure, but it's like the passion that I had when I was seven has not left, you know. And I think that having great teachers was a really important part of that, you know. I, I had a bunch of great instructors, Sue Jones, who was basically the teacher to almost every percussionist in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. uh, Susan Jones, and then um, she sent me to Sam Ruttenberg because he was teaching jazz pedagog- jazz drum pedagogy. And so I studied with him for a while, and he had an interesting perspective because he he figured out some ways of uh, not necessarily notating the vibe or the feeling of, you know, the early jazz drummers, but the technical things that they were doing. Like, for example, you know, Elvin Jones would play this, this phrase, like it would be left hand on the snare drum, uh, right foot bass drum. And it would just be like a triplet, like... But it would be snare bass, snare bass, snare bass, snare bass, snare bass, snare snare bass. And it's like on all of the records, a lot of the records that he did with Train. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh man, this is hard. Because technically speaking, what he did was he used some of Elvin's uh, playing to establish four-way coordination. Mm -hmm. And I thought that it was genius because, I mean, you know, I I remember I was listening to... uh, Play Summertime, playing Summertime with an Elvin that's playing just the most ridiculous stuff in the world on the record. Like, that was the first John Coltrane record uh, out, uh, the first John Coltrane tune I had ever heard. It was on a compilation that my father gave me. And and I mean, Elvin is just ripping on this tune. And so I'm like, man, how, how is he even playing this stuff? So I started transcribing, quote unquote, without actually writing it down and notating it. I could but it was all aural. And I think that that had been, that's probably been the greatest asset, you know, starting music, not necessarily reading, but learning by ear and using my ear to figure out everything else has been the greatest asset to my life as a musician, because I mean, I've been in some situations where, I may have waited till the last minute to learn some people's music. I sorry to whoever was a casualty of this. Um, you know, because like I've always put my family first, and I've always been extremely young playing some of these gigs, so homework came first. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like there was a point when I realized, oh, wait a minute, hold on. I'm starting to find similarities in this person's writing and this mm. artist. Oh, wait a minute they're quoting my now understanding of Shostakovich. okay. So maybe if I put this here, you know, like the juxtaposition of all of these ways of, uh, all of these perspectives of writing started making sense to me. And um, I think that all of that is a testament to just being told to trust my ear when I was young, even when I played classical music, you know, my, uh, there was another teacher that I had, great teacher uh, Don Luti is the principal tim- timpanist of the Philadelphia Orchestra. Um, he's he was really big on uh, trusting my ear mm-hmm. because you know he I, I would analyze symphonies like early on, just like basic like like Brahms one, and at the time we were playing Sibelius one, I think Sibelius first symphony in uh, the Philadelphia Youth, Youth Orchestra, which I was a member of for four years and um, I didn't get it, I was, I was playing timpani and I just, it was awful, and I'm just like, does none of this make sense to me, he said, well do you have the score, I'm like, for what, and then I realized, oh, okay, maybe I should find out what everyone else is doing, so I mean, and again, hearing what was happening made sense once I had the score in front of me, then I could figure out, oh, I have the melody here, this is why I'm getting hollered at, like, <laughs> I never, like, in the second movement, I think it is, like, I never would have thought of that though because if you don't understand context you can't you won't understand your place in the grand picture you know in the grand scheme of it all so yeah like all of my teachers encouraged using my ear and learning how to read music and to this day it's been paying off and people are gracious enough to call me to play with them and you know they'll give me a tune that's black page also known as just a ton of notes mm-hmm. just like every odd meter you can think of and i'm just looking at this like why did you call me to do this and <laughs> you know and it works out in the end because mm-hmm. i think you know i'm i'm fortunately able to hear what people are doing and uh and if i don't understand it i will ask questions a lot of my teachers were also wondering why I was so inquisitive about everything because you know I would work on stickings and I'm like why should I have to do this I think this is more comfortable and this is better they're like this is just the way that it's supposed to be done and I'm so grateful that they did that you know because now I have a methodical way of thinking about okay well how should I approach this thing that I'm hearing in the moment and it's like okay wait okay we're swinging we're swinging and I'm hearing a response to whatever someone's doing, subconsciously my body's always gonna move. Whatever hand is closer to the area of the drum that I'm gonna play, I'm gonna lead with that hand. And at times, excuse me, at times, I wanted to start phrases with my left hand just because I knew it was harder. But then my teachers would say, well, you realize your ideas aren't gonna come out. I mean, that's something great to practice, but you should probably figure out a way to make music instead of worrying about which hand you're starting it with. You, I mean, if you practice enough, your body's going to start naturally move to whatever position is necessary in order to make this particular phrase happen. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, the, the, my teachers gave me a lot of information very early on. Yeah.
0: You mentioned, you h- highlighted uh, trusting your ear. Mm. Uh, do you have any thoughts on how you might help older students uh, trust their ears because I feel like a lot of the a lot of the ways in for that older students take are very some of the methods are very like theory based Mm -hmm. like play these notes at these times Mm -hmm. and they they do that before they can really hear those Mm -hmm. things and then they kind of have to backtrack or actually, I've, I've had a lot of uh, older students just not want to backtrack, because it's hard. Absolutely. And it's hard to go back and go, oh, no, I have to trust my ear. Oh, I have to really like hear this thing before I do it. Um, do you have any thoughts on how to translate what you learned uh, for, for, an, for an older student?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I really find this is going to sound somewhat of a... Oh, I just have to take this from Bradford. is just, just, I mean, like, when we start thinking about developing sound vocabulary, using your ear becomes more logical in comparison to, you know, playing these notes because it works over this chord. You know, so for example, you know, there's a lot of people that are... Uh, when improvising, you know, their, their perspective is very harmony-based. Which, you know, I mean, I think that... I think that it's important to understand what you're playing. But also, it's important to be able to hear that, okay, just because I can play this thing, and it works theoretically over this chord change, doesn't mean that it's important to the song. So I think that, you know... As, a, as an older musician, it's important for you to just listen to great songs. Initially, it's like, you know, Yesterday's has an incredible melody. Mm-hmm. Listen to it. Why does it have an incredible melody? How does this make you feel? Okay, great. Huh. There's another song that you're playing that has, that, that has a very similar melodic structure maybe I could apply the vibe of yesterday's on this. Huh. Cuz the reality is that like okay. I think when we're learning how to play, we're being told actually this this myth of us finding our sound is pounded into us because that's what these teachers were told. That's what these players were told. The reality is that i will never sound like elvin jones today in my life it's impossible i will sound like someone trying to sound like elvin jones but i'm still going to sound like myself so why not figure out all of the things that these musicians provided in the history just listen like just listen to it it doesn't necessarily have to make sense to us because i think everyone is so eager to play and eager to solo most importantly that we forget that you know the whole point of us doing this is not to solo actually you know our whole goal of this is to one this was dance music at one point so maybe it should feel good to make people want to dance again regardless of whatever it is you know even if we're playing free out whatever you want to call it there's a dance to that as well you know and so i think it's just important for us to listen to 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 good stuff, you know, like listen and listen to what we consider terrible music, you know and some people believe that there is no such thing but listen to some tunes that we don't like, find out why we don't like them and then find some qualities of the tune that we do like, Mm. then after you listen to something consistently over over a period of time you start to hear it that's the only way this works you know, Mm. and I think like, a lot of Theoretical perspectives in jazz schools have taken the joy of listening out of playing jazz. It's like, you know, I mean, I put on uh, the Steve Lacey record featuring Don Cherry yesterday and they played less Cool One. I'm okay. You know, I'm having a great afternoon as a result of this. You know, it's like, like just listening to this music and allowing the joy of it to be the foundation of what we're doing it allows the consistency to to, to be less redundant and annoying mm-hmm. you know it's like we have to listen to things multiple times over a long period of time in order for us to figure out what is happening from an oral perspective mm-hmm. it's impossible to learn jazz without listening and a lot of people have tried to learn jazz without listening and It doesn't really hurt the music because there will be other people that will choose to listen and go from that perspective and understand what they're playing. And I think that, you know, older musicians shouldn't be discouraged because, I mean, there's a lot of older musicians that I know that started later than most people and they're the ones that are working. They're the ones that people are calling because there's a level of honesty in not knowing or, not knowing as much of another as as much as another person, you know. I think I think for for my case, you know, like there's Makai Boone and Nazir Evo. They knew they know way more music than I did when I was 12 and, and 19. You know, it's like I listen to them play. It's like, wow, why didn't I have this perspective then?
2: Yeah.
1: And it makes me feel like okay, well, maybe, huh? Actually, they're playing some stuff that I may not dig now either. Hold on, wait a minute. But the reality is that, you know, realizing that we're going to grow at our own pace, regardless of how much information we try to cram, the brain computes information at a very slow pace. Repetition is the only way for us to understand it best. It's yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't really know a, a, any other way. It's like just don't be discouraged about other people's progress. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like listen to as much music as you can but listen to a record consistently for a long time so that the record can start speaking to you instead of you computing the information you're now computing the sound and the information Mm -hmm. that was a long answer that's great man I really appreciate your thoughts on that no
0: Um, as as we all uh, progress in our careers, I feel like uh, we want to take on uh, different projects mm-hmm. and 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 bigger projects. I had this conversation with uh, with Tim Warfield, which is actually that's, one one that's of the. Uh, I took a lesson with him a couple months back, yeah. and which ended up being uh, a very inspirational uh, moment in the development of this podcast. Mm where because after the conversation first of all I took a a, the lesson was a composition lesson and we almost immediately got into okay you wrote the song now how do you get it how do you make it give it a life how do you like send it out into the world which gets into questions of business band leadership Mm -hmm. um, all these um, uh, back a lack of a better term extra musical uh, things mm-hmm. and um, a thing I see a lot of musicians doing now uh, musicians that, I, that we all came up together with mm-hmm. uh, they're starting their own concert series mm-hmm. uh, they're starting their own jam sessions mm-hmm. and it's been really amazing to see that and uh, I just want to talk about the Community Unity Festival for, mm-hmm. uh, for a little bit Uh, because that has been part of that for the past couple years and has been an amazing festival here in West Philly uh, in Clark Park and uh, could you speak a little bit about how how it came
1: about and uh, where it's going absolutely Um, so one quick thing Tim is actually one of my mentors believe it or not so like I mean that's Tim is just such a smart person
0: yes it's
1: just really like I mean (laughs) he's just a very intelligent dude so um and I'm really, like, I'm blessed to have people like him and, and the Cats and Grandfords band, like, these are just all highly intelligent individuals. Mm-hmm. And Tim has also been my uh, my style guru for a long yes. time, my sensei, <laughs> so uh, absolutely. Um, so, okay, so the funny thing about my family is that oftentimes we're looking to make things better. Or even to like, we're looking, we're looking into whatever it is to see if it's possible to make it better. And um, you know, as I was telling you before, you know, my family, uh, we lost two of my cousins. I guess this is like almost more than ten years ago, 14, 15 years ago. And um, you know, my mother was just sick of the gun violence that was happening in our community. I mean. West Philadelphia is a very interesting mixture of everything and everyone. And, you know, you have some areas that are really nice and the property values are ridiculously high. And then you have some areas that are the opposite. And in those areas, there tends to be a lot of crime. So, um, my mom and I wanted to create this festival and it was really her idea. I remember the first year we did it, it was, she like she wanted to do it she, she figured that she should do this in like the month of June is when the idea came. She had had it for years, but she said, I'm going to do a festival this summer. I'm like, okay, <laughs> we don't know what we're doing. How are we going to pull this off? And, you know, at the time I was playing with Jackie Terrason and he had wanted to play in Philadelphia. So we brought Jackie Terrason to Clark Park and this is 2013, 2014, something like that. Um, and every year we've just we wanted to just bring high quality art to this area. You know, I think uh, a lot of, the, the musical aspect of this is based in, I mean, it's based on my life, you know, like being a part of the Kimmel Center's uh, youth jazz ensemble that they started in 2001, 2002, something like that. I, I had the opportunity to see everyone. You know, I saw see ornette coleman Wenton marcellus Branford's band was the first jazz concert i had ever seen in a major hall oddly <laughs> enough <laughs> That's talk amazing. about full circle yeah which is yeah crazy. yeah i was in fifth grade and um yeah, it's like i mean i saw all of these artists the mingus big band uh john faddis and the carnegie hall jazz orchestra the dizzy gillespie all-stars um the Nilo perez the brian blade fellowship i mean all of these people came to Philadelphia and did interactive masterclasses with us and were accessible to the people. I mean, I went backstage after almost every concert because this, these lovely three people, Lillian Schwartz, Mervan Mehta, and Christine Volpe, and also Tom Warner, who was a, I believe he was a program director in conjunction with Mervon and Lillian. Um, you know, they made an oppor- they created an opportunity for all of us to go backstage and meet these artists. And so, I mean, I, you know, I had worked with Danilo with the youth jazz ensemble for almost two years because he was the artistic director or the artist in residence at the, at the Kimball Center. Well, who knew that, you know, 10 years down the line, Danilo would be one of the teachers at the college that I'm attending and he, that he would remember me. And then who knew that I would be playing a double bill with, the Joshua Redman Double Trio and Brian Blade is playing drums and he remembered me and all of these concerts that I was very blessed and fortunate to have experienced turned into the beginning of relationships that would now benefit me in my late 20s you know and so I know that these opportunities need to be made available for some young kid that's playing drums in a drill team Whose parents don't necessarily see the promise that my parents saw. Yeah. You know, my mother said I was going to be a drummer at age two. You know, I was beating on something. I was matter of fact, my mother bought me a keyboard, and I was banging on that. And so then my dad is like, "Why is he doing that?" My mom was like, "Well, it's because he's going to be a drummer." You know, and so yeah, you know, it's not all the time that the parents know that it's a possibility for your child to make a living uh, fixing lights for an artist. I mean, I have friends who make a ton of money as light designers. You know, like, people don't know that these jobs exist, and so bringing a festival like this, it's a community festival, like, you know, we're not made in America or anything like that. Like, community festival, this is our sixth year, and to give some young people an opportunity to see this level of art, I mean, we were given free tickets to the Kimmel Center. Mm -hmm. You know, and I know, like, tickets to the Kimmel center like 75 bucks
2: yeah
1: that's meals for people yeah. you know like parents don't always see that as a necessity for their children and so to have someone like this year like a Bootsy Collins being in the park and the thing that's interesting is that Bootsy. I remember when I was first talking to him because I met him through Christian McBride another great Philadelphia actually West Philly bassist mm-hmm. um Christian and I were playing in Cincinnati. I was subbing for great drummer Nasheed Waits, and Bootsy came to the show. I played, fast forward, December, the day after Christmas, I recorded a song to go on Booth, one of Bootsy's projects. Um, then after that, we were playing in Cincinnati again with Branford, and Bootsy was like, Hey, would you be down to record on some stuff again? I'm like, Absolutely. Brantford did uh, some recording the day before me, and then I came in the day after to play on some stuff. And so, uh, you know, I was talking to him about his advocacy that he, the, the advocacy that he has for for young people. It's like his ability to, in my, in my opinion, stand in the gap for young people. You know, he has programs, Easter egg hunts, all of these things in the city of Cincinnati, excuse me, to benefit young people. And, you know, I was talking to him and his team and asking them if they were into coming to Philadelphia to be a part of this. And they said, absolutely. You know, and Branford has done the festival. This will be his third time performing at the festival. And, you know, it's great that these cats are my friends and they're coming to this, to this festival to, to to perform, but it's even better that they just care about the community because music saved all of our lives. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, like a lot of people think because I have on, you know, three piece suits and well polished shoes, it's like I grew up in an area where like, you know, on one side I had some really cool down to earth, well to do people. And on the other side, I had cats that were making drug transactions and maybe someone shot like literally there was my cousin was shot in the house that was connected to our home next door. You know, so I mean, I think that any area can be plagued with gun violence. It doesn't have to do with your 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 economic standings. Like I think it just has to do with your value system and what you've been taught and the environment that you've been brought up in, in terms of what your household teaches. Yeah. And you know, I think our festival has just it's we've just been trying to push the idea of. Pick up an instrument and put down a gun. It's like we have this opportunity. I mean, we give out some free instruments to students that want to start playing. We, if we can't provide all of the money for the lessons, we'll at least cover the the first initial semester or the whole year if we can afford it. Because I mean, you know, all of our fundraising is done through family and friends, and you know, we we've we've tried our hand at grant writing. We've been awarded some. But, I mean, honestly, we've put up the money for this, and it's fine, because at the end of the day, I know that my community supported me. The cool thing about it was that my, my community didn't care about that. Mm-hmm. They cared about the success and the progress of the young people that were on that block. And I really have to say that it's a special block. They've allowed me to practice from the crack of dawn to dusk. I mean, I've played for hours people used to sit on the step and listen. I mean, I had a 94-year-old mentor that passed away uh, a few years ago. He introduced me to Count Basie's music, you know. he His thing was he would go down to 40th and Market and there was a guy that sold DVDs. And he would get these like either bootleg or actually just rare, hard to find DVDs of like Basie, Nat King Cole, uh, Duke Ellington, um, Billie Holiday, and I mean this is the type of uh this is the type of resource that I had and I think that, you know, my life is very much uh aligned with God. Like I without God I wouldn't be doing any of this stuff. And I think that my street is a very blessed street. You know, it's like, you know, my a friend of mine across the street, he's a well known DJ now. You know, a friend of mine that's that, that lived down the street from me. He's a doctor and he's twenty 29, maybe 30, you know, it's like, I mean, all of us were very blessed to have incredible families, incredible support systems that instilled certain morals in us that, you know, helped us get to where we are today at a very young age. That should exist for other people too, you know, and I think that our community, it's funny, like, you know, as we see this area changing, we see a lot of new people moving in. A lot of our older people are passing away. Our community's changing. you know our area is changing. and so as a result, it's starting to become really impersonal, you know and we want to continue the neighborly um, camaraderie that we've had in the past. I mean I've literally known every single neighbor on my street since I was a kid. you know when I moved away and came back. When I came home to see my family, my family was my entire street. Everybody knew me, and now we 're still trying to keep that up. like we have some new neighbors that moved into my um, my mentor's home, and I know everybody over there because you know something? I have a 93 year old grandmother you know, and my grandmother sometimes sitting on the porch. I want my neighbors to know that my grandmother is 93 and that she's hanging out here, but look out for her because I will do the same thing if you have a relative that is older, that's living with you, roaming around the neighborhood, or just even walking to the stores. Like, we have to care for each other, you know? I truly believe that kindness, empathy, and compassion is so necessary for us to all exhibit and all really internalize as well. And this festival speaks to that, you know? Our festival is free. People don't have to pay anything if you want to give donations to us That's totally fine because we operate solely off of donations, but you know even though You know we do fund a lot of this. We have year-long operations and so um, And again our our goal is to put instruments in young people's hands and take the guns out of them put down the guns pick up an instrument and so we're always Welcoming donations, and uh, our site to give is so it's community unity and we did it is a really great platform, which um, it allows it allows us to receive giving year round. And it's just like the GoFundMe or the Indiegogo or PayPal. I mean, it works the exact same way. And it's also been endorsed by the San Francisco National Zoo. So, uh, well, San Francisco Zoo. I don't know if it's National Zoo or not. But uh, yeah, so uh, it's a Community Unity Music Fest. Give whatever your heart desires. No donation is too small. No donation is too large again we've all benefited from donations scholarships some for people lending us money whatever like I mean all of us collectively as a as humanity have benefited from this so if you feel inclined to give again that's community unity music fest that we did Dot IT details who's headlining yes. okay so what, what is the time yes date. Yes, yes. so so the festival is on August 3rd 2019 Um. It will be from 1 p.m. to about 7, 7.30. Uh, And this year we have the funkiest one to ever live, Mr. Uh Bootsy Collins. He will be joining uh, my band, which is going to feature my brother and I, both playing drums, Nazir Ibo. And then uh, I have Branford Marcellus coming in as a special guest as well.
2: And then I have a bunch of other special guests that I
1: can't actually announce, but yes, awesome. uh, there's there's a lot of people that are going to be in the park cool. to come and just celebrate with us because this is a celebration of life. You know, yeah. the people that we've lost, we 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 hope that all of them are in a better place, and we also have to preserve the life that the, the lives that we all have to live collectively, and so let's celebrate our achievements this year, you know, let's celebrate, like, we have a student that we sponsored that just graduated from college from the new school. Nice. That's a great achievement. Jazz school is hard. (laughs) You know, it's like, I mean, school is hard, period. You know, no matter how intelligent you are, it takes determination and tenacity and determination, Mm -hmm. not one or the other, you know. So I think, yeah, like, this is just going to be a day for us to party in the park. Free. There's going to be great food. Yeah. There's going to be a ton of our neighbors that we all need to meet. You know, we all need to figure out a way to live together and not coexist. Like we all are family. Yeah. This is this is a love thing. As
2: a great musician in
1: Philadelphia, Mr. Steve Bailock says, yeah. no, "It's a love thing." You know, this is literally fertile ground that if we plant seeds, they will grow and we will have a harvest. Yeah. And we're not trying to create this harvest for us we're trying to create this for generations after and so if we start this now and we start creating an area of love a community of love this trickles down to our children our grandchildren great-grandchildren and several generations after so August 3rd Bootsy Collins Branford Marcellus and yeah it's gonna be a party it's gonna be great thank you
0: Justin Faulkner, for hanging out with me and for doing this and talking about it and letting everybody know, man. I really appreciate you. Indeed, My pleasure.
2: Indeed.
0: Thanks again for listening, everybody. For me, this series is a labor of love. My goal is to help document the making of jazz history in this moment. If you have any suggestions about who you would like to hear on this show, drop me a line. Thanks for tuning in and I hope to hear from you soon.